welcome everyone. My name is Chris Simpkins and today I'm joined by Jack Simmons from Barclays who's joined me to talk about his experiences and share his stories of working hard to improve contracts and contracting at Barclays. So Jack, for those that don't know you, perhaps you could just begin by introducing yourself. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me along, Chris. So I'm, yeah, as Chris says, I'm Jack Simmons. I'm in the legal team for Barclays UK, advising on partnerships and platforms. So that includes third-party products and services that we make available in our app, surfacing our products and services in third-party channels, and then also helping scale our physical Eagle Lab network. Fantastic. I guess one of the reasons we're talking today is that we've recently worked together on a couple of projects, what we describe as contract optimization projects. And for context, I think that means for us, it's kind of working hard to improve the content and design of your contract templates. So with that in mind, perhaps you could just start by giving us a bit of background about the projects that we've actually worked on. Sure. So over the last two years, Barclays Legal has been optimising its legal work and looking for ways to become more efficient in the way that we're providing our advice. And at the same time as we're doing that, partnering is becoming a key part of delivering financial services to customers. Commercial partnerships can generate a lot of contract work. And so that's where we got Simmons Wave like, involved to help us come up with a solution. Great. And I suppose, again, helping to set the scene a little bit. I mean, these commercial partnership agreements, you were working with long form commercial agreements, a lot of front end terms and conditions, as lawyers would describe it, lots of schedules. And actually, they can be quite complex arrangements, can't they? With, you know, thinking about how you develop and share IP, joint marketing obligations, development, software development in some cases, um, exit obligations. As, these aren't necessarily simple arrangements. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. We were seeing these as being bespoke contracts every time we were having to get external counsel involved um, just because of the sheer amount of work it was creating. And we knew that if, if we wanted to do more of these, then we needed to find some way of templating the approach and looking for similarities across the deals that would allow us to do that. Brilliant. Okay. So I guess that leads us on to the obvious question. When we talk about this contract optimization work, what do you actually do? What did it look like in, in this context? So we created a template, so nothing new there, perhaps, but I'd say the difference was how we built the template um, and we focused on the users. So those who actually use, read and negotiate the contracts, our main goal was to remove friction for them in the end to end process. Or to put it another way, we were using design thinking for our contracts. I suppose as with all things, there's a temptation to reach for technology as the solution. But we actually thought the, the thing that we should be focusing on more so was having an eye on the content of the contract. And that was where we put our focus. Which is, I guess that's interesting in itself. Like you say, that there can be lots of focus when we're talking about contract lifecycle management, contract technology, contract process to jump to these solutions or ideas for how we can improve the contracting process but actually it's quite it's really refreshing to say well ultimately we're getting bogged down in the process of creating and negotiating these contracts the real source of that particular problem is the template and the legal terms we're using at source yeah. how can we focus on that first and perhaps other things will follow so that i mean that in itself is an interesting observation so you you had some kind of long form traditional 
template you were using you just said you, you kind of described it as starting from a blank page with the new one what can, can you go into a bit more detail as to what that process looked like yeah so we created some drafting principles and the idea behind that was so that it would help stop us falling back into our old habits even if we started with a blank sheet of paper the likelihood was that we were going to write something that looked really similar to what we had already and so we needed something that we could put up on the wall that we were looking at every time we we're working on the contract to say these are the things that we should be bearing in mind and keeping as our core principles of creation when we were designing the contracts. I mean, that approach in itself is quite unusual and really refreshing to have a client come to you and say, A, we want to do something differently. B, we want to kind of spend time thinking about how we can do our templates better. And I guess C, to come with pre thinking you, you you'd spent time internally to think about how we want to guide this process and what we want to get out out of it rather than just going we need a template <laughs> um so, we, so that that actually that not only allowed us to tell you what we wanted to do but it helped us get buy-in from the stakeholders both in the business and also uh, within legal this was something that we hadn't done before and it was a bit of a refreshing approach so we had to make sure that everyone understood we were doing this in a slightly different way. And that's where the principles came in. Yeah, um, and so, ultimately it's it buy-in in terms of just support for the approach, but but it's also just practically getting budget, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we talked about these principles. What Are you able to summarise them? I can. So we had three core principles. We had a few others, but I'd say the three that we'll talk about are as follows. So... We had empower the business to own the contract, make the terms mutual to reflect a partnership and remove provisions we're unlikely to enforce. Those were the three and I can go into each of those briefly. Yeah, do. So on empower the business to own the contract, we moved two main things to the front of the contract. That was all key deal information. So roles and responsibilities, who is doing what and when, and who's paying who and so on, basic commercial information, which really the, the business know um, and can go in, in a front end of a contract. But we also included variable aspects of the deals and that overlapped into some of the legal elements of the contract, which was based on our experience of what typically changes across these partnerships. That can include things like where Barclays wants to own IP or doesn't, and then what kind of data fields we're sharing that all might traditionally be set out in the legal body of the document. And we wanted to push that up into the commercial section of the uh, of the contract. Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose just taking a moment to reflect on that then, it's it, probably quite common people are maybe used to seeing contracts these days, but certainly shorter form agreements where you've got some kind of contract front sheet with a few commercial variables at the front. So party name, start date signatures and so on but actually what you're describing here is something that's much bigger change to the traditional way of how these longer form agreements look because you've taken all the stuff that would traditionally be populating the schedules at the back right from what ip would be generated what people's obligations are on development exit obligations all those essential tables and detail that would be stuck at the back end you've turned the whole thing on its head and you're putting those at the in the document at the front of the contract so that's quite a lot of information to put at the front isn't it how did that play out in terms of trying to tackle that and get your business colleagues to complete all that information i'll, I'll come on to the sort of the impact of it 
in a moment. But I suppose the, the main thing is when we say we moved it to the front, we mean we were putting it into the document that the business would end up using. At one time, we thought this would be a term sheet that they would use to negotiate their deals. But actually, we ended up putting it together with the legal terms of the document and it actually became part of the contract. So it, it was meant to be used like a term sheet, but it ended up becoming part of the contract. I remember you saying early days that in reality, a lot of the process of putting together the old form agreements was you just trying to get information out of your business colleagues so that you or external lawyers could just write that information into the schedules. And it was exactly. that, because it was it's a quite an alien, long form document. You, you have to help them through that process. Whereas looking at that objectively, all you are doing is collecting information and putting it into a document. And now you've tried to put it into a form that even if you need to look over it, tidy it up and things, the business people start by doing that now. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, sound, it sounds like an obvious thing to do, but actually contracts aren't written in that way traditionally. So that was what we want, why we wanted to take a different approach. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I think the next principle you mentioned was making the two terms mutual partly in this context because these are partnership agreements by their nature you're partnering with a third party so what, what did that look like in practice i suppose the first thing to flag is that this is in the context of a partnership and so it won't apply to every type of contract or every type of deal but in the context of a partnership we asked ourselves why we were asking for certain legal protections but then not offering that uh, ourselves to the partner in the context of a partnership and when we thought about it, the business teams can't really afford to negotiate their deals in that way. So it seems odd that we would do that as lawyers. Yeah. And, uh, having worked with you on this, and it's again, refreshing taking a mutual, what I would describe as a mutual by default approach. I think there was a kind of a, we'll make things mutual unless there's a good reason not to. And, and I find it interesting when you're rewriting these clauses or thinking about how you put it in, how suddenly you look at a clause very differently when you take your standard language and make it mutual, you suddenly have a different view of how important that caveat or that bit of language that you constantly throw in. Yeah. You know, the oh, yeah. nature of it just permeates everything, doesn't it, until you start making it mutual. Yeah, def definitely. I mean, you know, oh, we can't agree to that. So yeah, it really it focuses your mind on what it is you're asking the partner to do and maybe even makes you empathise with them a bit around the protection you're asking for. I guess the other thing, because I, I know one of the things we did as well, is include guidance notes in your new template. So these were things that were flagged and deliberately included and flagged as guidance notes. So they're not meant to be part of the, the legal terms. And that was interesting because there are some situations in the terms where it's not mutual because it's not appropriate for you to be mutual or perhaps because you're a regulated bank, there's stuff that needs to go in there. So we deliberately took the approach of trying to include guidance notes to explain this to the reader and particularly i guess the partner and their legal teams which again sounds kind of when you describe it like that it's like well it seems like an obvious thing to do but that's not typically done is it when in, in these kind of in a standard form template to include things that are directly targeted at the other partner to try and describe and explain to them that it is mutual and if it's not mutual why it's not mutual no, I, I, so I've not seen it done, but I would say it is something that you do in fact do when you're, say, on a call, you might be explaining why you take that position, whereas actually all we're really doing is just putting that in the contract uh, around the specific clauses 
so that we don't have to have that conversation multiple times. It's just there alongside the protection that we've asked for. So that that was why we did that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, that you you encapsulated a lot of this process, haven't you? Because both in terms of making clauses mutual or providing guidance where they're not mutual, you're essentially just cutting through the conversations you know you're going to have anyway. Because if you know that you're going to make a clause mutual, why not make it mutual by default? And if you know what how you'd explain it to somebody, you put it in the text um, within reason. That, that's that's, um, that's really interesting. And I guess your last principle, just remind me of the last principle. Yeah, third one was removing provisions we're unlikely to enforce. And we asked ourselves whether each provision was really needed that was in there. And it sort of ties into what you were just talking about there. But if we weren't likely to enforce that provision, then we wanted to challenge ourselves as to why would we have spend time negotiating that and then redrafting it. All of that is time within the negotiation process that we just didn't want to do on each deal, but start to take a view on upfront when we were designing the template. So we were continually challenging ourselves to use simpler language or less text to cover the same risks or even remove the protection depending on what it was. And actually having yourselves on board providing that external perspective really helped with that exercise because it, it helped, helped sort of challenge us as to what we thought was essential that turned out to be an in-house view, um, but then also gave us a bit of comfort that we weren't going too far off the track. Yeah. It's actually, it's really hard, isn't it? I think, especially as lawyers, it's a muscle we do not regularly use to look at these things and go, let's take things out. But actually it's it's a really valuable two-way conversation or three-way conversation, however many people are involved between external advisors, in-house teams or business colleagues to challenge each other as to whether or not we really need it. And also I would say it's really powerful for external advisors and lawyers to be given, to be encouraged and given license to wade into that conversation and, and and be part of this challenging process of going, do we really need to say it? How can we cut it back? Rather than feeling like you need to be on the fence, always taking the risk averse approach. So that I, I guess that's really powerful. And then it's probably the biggest thing that took unnecessary pages and pages of content and made a shorter template in the end. But what I find is really powerful in this process is to always kind of start with a blank page mindset like you like you refer to right at the start because we're so used to taking an existing template and then taking things out but when you do that you're always creating an anchor effect of the kind of the assumption that you will you will keep things in unless there's a good reason to take it out rather than with a blank page working out what you need to say and deciding what goes in rather than taking things out if that makes sense that's exactly it yeah, flipping yeah. the presumption. Brilliant. So we've talked quite a lot about what you did then, and, and I know it's fairly early days, but what, what kind of impact have you seen now that you've started to use this new template for, for new deals? So for starters, I'd say it's something that you actually want to pick up and read. And that was really what we wanted to do is make it so the business were able to engage with it as a document rather than thinking of it as a contract. So the user experience is just way better through use of things like clever formatting and layout, um, the, the business are far more comfortable working with the document. It's also got a friendly guidance page, which sort of ties into those notes that you were mentioning that we put throughout the contract, but it's right up front. It's the first thing that the partner sees, the first thing that the other side's legal team might see. And it first of all, explains how the contract works. You want to do that work for them up front so they don't have to figure it out but it also politely asks them to think twice before getting their red pen out. 
um, and to have a call before uh, to discuss any of those changes. And really, that's just so that we can put the message out there that we've actually really thought about this. We've tested it with some partners. We don't typically get a lot of pushback on the contract. And it's just putting it out there up front to say, just so you know, that is why um, we, you know, we, we wouldn't expect you to mark this up too much. But we're open to discussing any comments with you. Yeah, and it's really, I think, because us as lawyers in particular are so used, it's our day job to pick up compl complicated contracts and and we're used to dealing with it. It's really easy to underestimate the impact of picking up a document and it's setting a tone. And like you say, that's that's in terms of guidance. That's in terms of how, how it's formatted, what it looks like. Um, but then ultimately also, I guess we, we haven't perhaps gone into in much detail that we went into quite a lot of effort of once we've done all the deciding what we need to say, how we need to say it and writing it in plain language, short sentences, clear headings and things. And even those things will really set a tone as how much people want to start hacking about with it and negotiating things and, and getting a feel for whether the approach you're describing is genuine. And I think it, it, that really does come across when you pick up this document that it's something a bit different and it's trying to set a different tone. Yeah, I fully agree. And that is also sort of one of the other impacts that we've seen is that it's help, helping our relationships with our partners. So we want to continuously improve how easy it is to partner with Barclays as part of the FinTech pledge, but also because it's good business to do that. And so, as you say, that tone that you set in the way that you write your document, the, the supporting materials you provide with it, those guidance notes and pages, all of those things help set the tone uh, as to effectively what is our first relationship with that particular partner, the first interaction. And so the feedback we've had so far has been really positive on that. That's great. And so I guess I guess lots of people it will come down ultimately to speed, money. So what, what kind of impact have you seen in terms of how quickly you can get these deals done? It's been pretty dramatic, I'd say. And the changes to the legal terms are actually the biggest, have had the biggest impact in terms of that time that you've mentioned. So we did have two identical deal structures, one before we put the template together and that we were doing under our old way of working and then another using the new template. And we measured the time it took to go from first draft through to the execution version. And on our first deal, pre-template, it took nine weeks of near full-time work. Uh, as I said, we were working with external counsel. Then when we had the template, uh, it went down to just three and a half weeks. So under half the amount of time to get to signing. And that was with the business leading the negotiations. We were able to run it in-house from a cost perspective. So it's had a massive impact. I mean, that is that's quite amazing, really, when you think about it. And it's easy to focus on you know, that drop from, I think you said, nine weeks to three and a half weeks in terms of time. It's not just time. There's a, there's a world of difference between it being a nine week transaction that's almost entirely being led and run by external lawyers to a three and a half week transaction that isn't even using external lawyers and is actually, I think, from what you've said, even using less time of the in-house team um, yeah. in those stages yeah yeah i mean that that is that is an amazing story really isn't it if, if you multiply that over multiple transactions and uh, and over time so i mean i think you've you've used this phrase the savings are in the pockets of time yeah um you mentioned that to me before and i really like it i just wonder whether or not you could uh, go into that a bit more and what you mean by that yeah so i'd say it's all those pockets of time where we're not getting involved 
because we've already taken a view or provided for it in our supporting materials. And that could be explaining drafting both internally and externally, days pushing back calls to seek instructions, creating bespoke provisions for standard issues or justifying one-sided provisions. All of that, that has been removed from the end-to-end -end process, all those pockets of time. And then that leaves the business focused on delivering great outcomes for the customers and us lawyers discussing the things that arguably we should be talking about. And that's termination rights, liability, indemnities, those kinds of things. And when you've got a contract down to those kinds of points, you're in a much better position to playbook and outsource the deal. I love that. Like you say, focusing on the sum of all those parts is where you can really start to make the biggest impact like you've started to show. And capturing and cutting out all those pockets of time, as you put it, is such a powerful way of thinking about it. So I guess a final question for you then, Jack. I mean, if we're thinking about lessons learned, do you have any tips or thoughts for those who've been hearing this and thinking this is something that they should be doing themselves? So I say, yeah, we've got four points, um, which is focus on the user, and that will always inform your content. And the drafting principles really help with that. Secondly, be ambitious with what you want to achieve and give yourself a license to take measured risks. A culture of experimentation is essential to make this kind of thing work. Thirdly, pilot the contract early and get some partner feedback on it. Test what partners are willing to accept first time and refine it as you go. And then finally, think of this type of contract optimization work as a long-term investment in the team. It can and should be prioritized alongside your deal flow because the time savings for the team can be massive. Wow. I mean, that's a brilliant list. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. And it's really a great point at which to draw this conversation to a close. Because like you say, I think your story shows brilliantly that there's so much value in taking the time to improve your contract templates in the way you have. I think it's probably one of, if not the most impactful things you can do to improve your whole contracting journey. And I think, you know, you and your team deserve a lot of credit for pushing the agenda and tackling the projects you have in the way that you have. Um, and I know you've got some other projects in the pipeline, so I look forward to hearing about those in future as well. So thanks for today, Jack. That's been brilliant. Great. Thanks very much, Chris.